What I have today is, instead of casting vision with a word from God that he's given me for this year, only to find out later that maybe that word was more from my own heart or my own wishes and desires, seven possible New Year's resolutions for those of you who have yet to resolve something on the spiritual front. I know not everyone does make a New Year's resolution, but if you would consider these seven castings of visions from God's word, uh, maybe one of them will stick out to you. Maybe one of them will be something that you need to ask God to help you focus on this year. Perhaps, like many people, uh, you have gotten into a rut spiritually and something new uh, needs to happen in your life. So let's begin with three ways in which we don't want to cast, and then four ways in which we do want to cast. All of this having to do rather than uh, casting vision with looking at God's word. First of all, as we go into 2022, as we deal with people who are kind of on edge and people who are always ready to scrap, have you noticed this lately? Everybody's ready to go. They're, they're uh, keyed up and they've got an argument in the chamber. Don't cast the first stone. This, of course, is a reference to John chapter 8. The story in which Jesus was set up by his enemies. They found him teaching and they brought to him a woman caught in adultery. They had done a great job at doing this setup because she had been seen by two witnesses. Everything was in place for her to be stoned to death according to the law of Moses. They thought for sure they had Jesus because if he were to say, go ahead and stone her, he would show himself to be a hypocrite. He'd been talking about turning the other cheek, showing grace and mercy, and continually being kind. And now here he would be telling them, this woman who is uh, scared and weeping before you, go ahead and put her to death. If he went the other direction and said, no, don't, don't stone her, they could say, look, he doesn't even believe in the law of Moses. This guy's nothing but new ideas. And so Jesus, with his trademark brilliance and always ready to turn things back on his opponents says to them as they continued to ask him in John 8 7 let him who is without sin among you cast the first stone pick up a stone and throw I'll just I'll wait who here will claim to be utterly without sin and we're told that one by one they dropped their stones they turned and walked away until it was just Jesus and her together and he said, is there anyone left to condemn you? And she said, no one, sir. And he said, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. This seems like the kind of story our culture would embrace and love with the emphasis on love, or at least the idea, some idea of love. And yet our culture loves to start casting stones. And you, you usually don't want to be the first one in our culture. You want to help pile on, though. Once you see the stones start to fly, that way it's, it's safer. Our culture loves to find someone who said the wrong thing or done the wrong thing, even if it was years ago, now that we've got a record of everything on the internet, and just let it rip. And when the stones begin to fly, technology means that millions and millions of them can come along with it. Twitter mobs can do this. That one sin that we want to focus on can keep the emphasis off of our own sin. It's odd that even in the Christian, maybe, sadly, especially in the Christian, this desire to cast the first stone can continue to hold some kind of sway in the hearts of believers. There's even a situation I think that I can think of in my life where I had the same sin in my heart, but it was revealed in someone else 
And a great way to take the emphasis off of my own guilt was to help condemn someone else. Uh, And of course, I didn't stone anyone, but all you have to do is say the wrong hurtful word, whether to that person directly or about them to someone else. And here you have essentially claimed to be without sin. There's a communist textbook, actually a high school ethics textbook, published by the Chinese government. Uh, I saw some scans of it and a translation of it from a source I trust. And it included a revised version of John chapter 8, in which Jesus is brought this woman and says, let him without sin cast the first stone, looks around, nobody does it, and then Jesus himself throws it. Now, that's some bad propaganda. Sadly, most people in China would not know why this was wrong. And there is almost some perverse truth in the idea that if anyone there would be able to throw the stone, it would be Jesus. The only one who truly was and is without sin, and yet he did not. Neither do I condemn you. When we get into these vindictive moods and modes of, even if we don't take part, liking to watch other people get caught up in their own mistakes, their own sins, their own faux pas, and then pay the price, we are not thinking, acting, and living like Jesus. We are acting like Satan. His purpose is to accuse, to condemn. This is something I think that the the church is gridlocked about. Either we say there's no such thing as sin and just let everything slide and celebrate all of it, or we have to be very judgmental, very angry, and Christ himself comes and says there is a third way. I do not condemn you either, but I call you to go and sin no more. I call you to repentance. I call you to the narrow way in love, but you won't find me condemning you. Now, he will come back again. That is his business. We will never be in the business of ultimately settling the score and punishing sin or casting stones. So first of all, don't cast the first stone if we're casting some vision for 2022. Secondly, don't cast your pearls before swine. Matthew 7, 6, do not give dogs what is sacred. Do not cast your pearls before swine. If you do, they may trample them under their feet and then turn and tear you to pieces. That has always struck me as such an odd teaching, especially right there in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. He has all sorts of reference to uh, how we're all sinful, how we all, even those who were Pharisees or their tithing of the, the little mint leaves growing on their windowsills, even they have sin in them. Everyone is sinful, even the ones who wash the outside of the bowl. Inside, there is filth. Even those who, who whitewash the outside of the tomb, inside there's dead men's bones. But then he says, there are those. Don't, don't throw them the holy things. Don't give them the pearls because they want to destroy them and then turn and destroy you as well. This seems to be at odds, I think, sometimes with the teaching of Scripture that we should proclaim the gospel to every creature, that we, that we are all dead in sin, and, and the old Puritan idea of preaching as a dying man to dying men. How are there those who are then below the bar that we shouldn't be casting biblical pearls to them because they are going to destroy them? I think it, it comes down to the notion of what is someone's intent. Often you will proclaim the gospel to someone, share some kind of biblical counsel with someone, and you will see that they are struggling with it. And they might throw it back in your face, but God might be at work. Continue to engage that person. 
But there are those who'd only want to start the argument, the debate, so that they can humiliate your God and tear down your worldview and tread the gospel underfoot. At some point, you may begin to enable vanity, the vain use of God's name, or worse, blasphemy, the mocking of Christ, his cross, and his blood, the taking of holy things, and crushing them, and then turning to crush you. When that is the goal, I am giving you permission in 2022, on behalf of the scripture, which I am opening before you as your pastor, to say this year, I'm going to keep the pearls back. There may be those who you, at work, have tried to engage with and have spent so much energy and so much time and the enemy is so happy that there's just this cycle of you try, they crush, they turn, they attack. You say, oh boy, well they, they spit on Jesus too and you keep on rinse and repeat, rinse and repeat. Maybe at a holiday gathering, somebody brings up that same old argument and you say, okay, let's try this again and you, and you bring it in and again they're blaspheming Jesus and, and laughing at and mocking the gospel. Maybe you're somebody like me who foolishly gets into online debates about such things with people. You can't stand to see someone make a claim uh, against the gospel that's easy to answer and you while away time. What can often happen is that you wind up saying, I tried that. I tried sharing the gospel with people. I tried bringing the scriptures to bear on someone's life and it didn't work well. Perhaps you've been casting the pearls in the wrong direction. Put a pin in that, we'll get to it in a while. But maybe, probably not many, but maybe one or two of you needs that to be a New Year's resolution. Don't cast your pearls before swine. It was important enough to Jesus to put that into his Sermon on the Mount. Thirdly, don't cast away your confidence. Hebrews 10.35 says, Do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. The fact is, following after Jesus, you are closer than ever to that reward. Now is no time to turn back. Now is no time to cast away your confidence. If you felt that you were on the, the edge of perhaps losing hope in the gospel, now you, you, you maybe haven't acknowledged it to yourself, but it's back there. It's, it's starting to wane, this idea that God is good and he has saved us from our sins and that when a loved one dies, we, we don't lose them forever, but they are present with the Lord. These things start to fade. Remember, do not cast away your confidence, which has a great reward. This might be a little too cute, but I'm already preaching a topical sermon, so whatever, mea culpa. But I think the old adage, doubt your doubts and believe your beliefs, is a very good battle cry for the Christian. Doubt your doubts. Well, that's what they're there for. That's why we call them doubts. Believe your beliefs. Don't get that flipped backwards. Doubting your beliefs and believing your doubts. Shakespeare said our doubts are traitors and make us lose what we off might win by something, something. And, and I think he's onto something there. Our doubts are traitors. And you know what? Traitors are put on trial and then they're hanged. That's what happens to traitors. Your doubts are traitors. Give them a fair trial. I'm not saying uh, you lock them away and pretend they don't exist. Give them a fair trial and then execute them for treason. Don't allow them to get a foothold. It's, it's not a sin to doubt, not by a long shot. In fact, almost every 
uh, seasoned saint, mature, powerful Christian that I know admits to doubts. Periods of doubt, individual doubts that may come up again and again, and they deal with them. It's not a sin to doubt, but to camp out and live in the valley of doubt, or Pilgrim's Progress Doubting Castle, it's not a smart move. It's sort of like anger, right? To become angry is not a sin. If it was, Jesus would have sinned. He got angry on more than one occasion in the Gospels. We're told in Ephesians, you may remember, be angry and sin not. Right? You can be angry and sin not, but we're also told... Don't let the sun set on your anger. It is dangerous to continue in a state of anger. In the same way, it is dangerous spiritually to continue to be comfortably camped out in a season of doubt. Deal with it. Talk to other Christians. Put it on trial and take care of these doubts. Do not cast away your confidence. Fourthly, do cast off the sin that entangles. I think that's a natural segue. We often think of, of people who fall away or drift away from the church as coming into doubt and, and worry and, and tensions, and they look through the scriptures and say, this doesn't make as much sense to me anymore, and I don't really believe it, and then as a result, they walk away from the church, and then they begin to sin. And they begin to live a lifestyle that a Christian would consider to be sinful. That's often as how it's presented. I know that I've, I've known many people who've walked away from the faith over the years, sadly, and almost every one of them would say, this is how it went. I found that the Bible wasn't really what it claimed to be. I walked away, and then it didn't matter to me how I lived. And yet I was there, and I saw it happen. And what I saw was the opposite. They began to sin, and as they sinned, their doubts began to grow. Because sinning and a besetting sin in your life gives room for. It's almost like, you know, you don't want to have that wet, dark place in your basement where the black mold can grow. Well, the sin in your heart is where doubt can grow. And so we read, do cast off the sin that entangles. Hebrews 12.1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also cast aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Running with endurance. 2022, remember when there used to be banners for every year in Baptist churches? I remember we had one, there was, there was like a felt expert at Burton Baptist Church, and they, were, they had just reams of the stuff, and, and they made a banner, and it was like this clip-arty guy running, and it said, run the race, like 1996 or something, and I always think of that whenever I read this passage, because it said Hebrews 12.1 at the bottom, and it was just such a weird, inhuman kind of running that the person was doing. But we need to move forward. If you have not been moving forward in your Christian walk, 2022 is the time to throw off that which has been holding you back. Cast off the sin that entangles. The Christian walk is much like riding a bicycle. You're either moving forward or you're tipping over, falling off. We read the same thing in Romans 13, by the way, Romans 13, 12. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. If I had to sum up what the Christian life looks like in the New Testament, it would be casting off the old, putting on the new. Casting off sin and carnal things putting on the armor, putting on the clothes of Christ. Fits quite well with the general notion of a new year, 
out with the old and in with the new. But I think what we're reading about in Hebrews 12, and perhaps also in Romans 13, is the idea of a besetting sin, a sin that you've gotten comfortable with. A sin that is dragging you down. It's not pulling you out of the church. It's not pulling you out of your home and bringing you out carousing. It's not, it's not taking you out of the equation. It's just neutralizing you in the midst of the battle. It's a foothold. Again, when, when Paul warned about anger, he said, Do not let the sun set on your anger and give the devil a foothold. All you need is to give him a little foothold and he'll get in. It's like, you ever see that... that great little clip online of the octopus that got pulled onto the boat by accident and there's a hole about this big and it pulls itself through it's creepy or the mouse that got into our house a month ago probably the tiniest little opening will never find it why if they can fit their nose through they can fit their body through we don't want to give a foothold we don't want to give access in our hearts if, if you sell someone a bit of land in the middle of a field you own, you own 100 acres, and you give them this tiny little 10 by 10 piece of land, the law says they, they're allowed to make an access road to it. And that's how it works with sin as well. We need to go through our hearts looking for any indicator that we have given place, we have rented space, we have given way to the enemy. And like a family that would go through before Passover and take all the leaven and remove it, take that out of our hearts. That is by far the best thing you could do going into a new year. And you have to be careful because it's not going to be obvious. The fact that you've missed it for some time and it's had time to become a besetting sin means that it's not obvious. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite uh, authors and preachers, wrote this, We are too apt to forget that temptation to sin will rarely present itself to us in its true colors, saying, I'm your deadly enemy, and I want to ruin you forever in hell. Oh, no. Sin comes to us like Judas with a kiss, like Joab with outstretched hand and flattering words. The forbidden fruit seemed good and desirable to Eve, yet it cast her out of Eden. Walking idly on his palace roof seemed harmless enough to David, yet it ended in adultery and murder. I don't know if we're the only family binging season four of Cobra Kai, but to quote the great Mr. Miyagi, best defense, no be there. And as we go into a new year, there are going to be situations in which if you are going to throw off a besetting sin, you will need to make sure you are not there. Do not be there. And it does not end with simply watching where you step, but it may be a violent spiritual upheaval. Think of the, the terms in which Jesus frames this stuff in Matthew 18. If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Or in the King James, cast it from thee. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And as if that wasn't clear enough, he doubles down with it with the eye. If your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. Cast off the sins that entangle you so easily. And it's easy to say, it's not easy to do. But if you said, this is the year that I'm doing this, and Lord, don't let me move on from it. Don't let me move on to some other goal. Don't let me forget about it and grow cold to it until it's done. He will be faithful. The Spirit will give you the power to do it. Yeah, I remember in the 80s, walking 
was all of a sudden a thing. I mean, people were walking before and are still walking now, but like walking, you know what I'm talking about? And my mom was so into walking. She would say, I'm going for a walk. And she'd say, you want to come with me? And I'd be like, no, because I will run and I won't keep up with you because of the way you walk, because it's the 80s. But then she started getting more serious about it and she got ankle weights. And they were three pounds a piece. And she would walk all over with these ankle weights on and, you know, the, the, the 80s power walking kind of thing. And my dad would be like, all right, let's go. And, and, and that was good. It was, it was training her, right? It's harder to walk with the ankle weights on, and so it's a better workout. But what if those were radiators chained to her ankles or engine blocks? She wouldn't make it very far. You've got to be moving forward in the Christian life. If there is something holding you back, odds are you kind of know what it is. You've just not wanted to deal with it. This is your year to cast it off. Fifthly, do cast all of your cares on him. As we read in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. There is an awful lot of anxiety in the world right now. There is an awful lot of worry and fear. And we need to remember that we are not bearing this stuff alone. That we have a God who says, come, throw it on my shoulders. Come, I will walk with you. I will bear it up with you. Spurgeon said the heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden... He carries it also. You ever move something with someone and realize you've got the light end? Isn't that a good feeling? You go, oh yeah, oh this is hard. Yeah, but I I got it. I don't need to stop halfway down the stairs. He holds the heavy end. And I think that what we often tend to do with a New Year's resolution or some sense of a new start or a new beginning or a new app that's going to get me in shape or whatever, we, we add more burdens to ourselves as if that is somehow going to relieve us of the burdens we presently feel. doesn't tend to work that way. More burdens are not going to lead to less anxiety, but more. Cast your cares on him. You know, in 1974... A guy named William Pogue, Colonel William Pogue, became the first American to go on strike in space. Sean, you probably know about this guy. I had only learned about it a couple weeks ago. He was part of the last longest manned mission aboard the Skylab space station, and it was an 84-day mission. About halfway through, this guy, Colonel Pogue, and the other astronauts requested from the ground controllers that they modify the schedule because they were being overworked. They were like, you don't know what it's like in space because you're not in space and you've never been in space, but we're in space and we're being overscheduled. He said, we were just hustling the whole day. The work could be tiresome and tedious, though the view was spectacular. (laughs) Ground control said, no, we only have so many hours total up there. There's so much work to do. Suck it up, buttercup. You can do it. You're astronauts after all. You're the best of the best of the best. They started to worry because he wouldn't let it go that maybe he'd become depressed with the lack of light or he was physically ill. And he said, no, it wasn't either of these things. We just wanted more time to look out the window and think. Eventually, the disagreement became so, uh, you know, obviously the astronauts are going to win. We're going to sit here. You can't come and, and fire us or anything. And so they said, okay, we will compromise with you. And for the last six weeks of the flight, they changed the schedule. And later, this guy Pogue wrote that having more time to look out the window at the earth below 
it, it was all the difference. That it allowed him to, quote, think about the human situation instead of trying to operate like a machine. I think often in our spiritual lives we think, all right, I'm going to up this game and it's not going to be stale this year. I've got to add more, 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 more. Maybe what you need is not three times the Bible reading, but less anxiety and to focus in that direction and praying for God to help you to cast your cares upon him and spending more time in doing just that in prayer, giving over to him that which is worrying you and weighing you down. Not to be guilty about the fact that it's weighing you down, that's how humans work, but to say, God, thank you, you've given me this opportunity as a follower of the gospel for you to share this weight, for you to take the heavy end and relieve me for a while. 1 John 4, 18, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out, it's a no-brainer, casts out, casts out fear, for fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. And it, you can read that and go, oh, that's a big additional weight on me. I've got to make sure that I'm not afraid of anything. No, you're going to be afraid of things. Cast those cares onto him. Let him take the heavy end. Trust him to bear up your burdens with you. Sixthly, do cast your nets on the other side. It's a bit of a stretch. There's always one in a topical sermon that's a bit of a stretch. But I think it's worth talking about. I've been thinking about this myself quite a bit lately. I'm talking obviously about John 21, in which after Jesus' resurrection and a couple of brief encounters with him, it goes dark for a while. And Peter is like, I can't just sit here and look out of the spaceship window at the earth. I've got to be doing stuff because I'm Peter. Looked around. Nah, I can't chop any of these guys' ears off. They're all my friends. So he says, I'm going fishing. And he goes back to the, the sea, which is what he knew. And several come with him. The other fishermen come with him. And they fish all night. This must have been deja vu all over again, right? Fishing all night, catching nothing. Humiliating for a professional fisherman. And then Jesus comes to them on the shore says, hey guys, have you caught anything? And they say, no, we haven't, we're, we're dry. They didn't recognize him. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat. I love that implies they've only been casting on the left. Like that's the way they do it. That's the way they were taught. That's how Zebedee taught them all. That's always how they've done it. He says, cast it on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And they say, eh, what do we have to lose? So they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. It's been said the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again, expecting another result. My sister, who's a social worker, got the DSM-5 latest edition for Christmas. I don't know how that's a Christmas gift, but, you know, it sounds like a write-off to me, but she got it. She was excited about it. I said, what's the definition of insanity? And she's like, I'm like, nah, never mind. You don't get it. The same thing, again and again, and expecting a different result. And I think... It's telling that in the world at large, the notion of the New Year's resolution or even the mid-year resolution has become a punchline, right? Everyone, the same thing. It's, it's a great way for gyms to sell memberships that, you know, they don't even need to buy more machines. They can rent them. They're only going to need them a little while, right? I'm going to get in shape. I'll exercise. I'll eat better. I'll get organized. I'll read more books. For the Christian, it's the same few things again and again, right? I'm going to read through the Bible twice this year, or I'm going to read through the Bible far more uh, rapidly and retain more of it. I'm going to pray 
45 minutes every morning. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share the gospel with 30 people a week. And it's these big grand things. And, and then we sadly let them slide over time. It becomes a punchline for, for the Christian or the non-Christian. And I think that perhaps the same thing again and again is the definition of insanity. Year after year. Maybe what we need to do is ask God to show us where we have fallen into a rut of assumption limiting how he will operate based on how we've always done things. Not that Baptists usually have a problem with that, but maybe you do, maybe I really do, and maybe we need to say, God, reveal to me some new way, something different to pray for, doing something new in my life, in my heart, rather than us repeating the same year once again. Rather than saying, Lord, help me to pray for 20 minutes before the sun comes up, maybe we need to say, Lord, I, I'm going to commit to praying for 10 people every day, or five people and three virtues, or one fruit of the Spirit that I really want to see in my life, and I'm going to pray for that one thing continually, continually, until I start to see you bringing it to bear in my life. Or maybe, God, I'm going to thank you for 50 gifts and graces every day and see how many days it takes me to actually run out. Spoiler alert, it will be never. Maybe instead of these very broad, Lord, I'm going to be less angry this year. I want your help with that. Maybe it needs to be more concrete. I'm going to do one kind thing for someone who makes me angry every week. I'm going to repay good for evil rather than evil for evil like the world does. That's something more measurable. I don't know. Maybe you've been too measurable and you need to say, Lord, just give me more of a sense of peace. I don't, whatever you've been trying and it doesn't work, be open to something else. Be open to God being at work in your life in a way that you didn't anticipate. I mean, that, that's usually not how it works. They knew exactly how Jesus were, was going to arrive and they were ready for him. Right? Isn't that the story of Christmas? No. Now we all Christians agree exactly how he will come again, and we're ready for it. No. He is working in ways. Even, even a, a heathen will say the Lord works in mysterious ways. Why do we think that he's only going to work in a grid we've established? Maybe we need to ask him to open our minds a bit more to his vastness and sovereignty and be open to him being at work in ways we would never have anticipated. In Matthew 13, 47, we read, Once again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was cast into the sea and caught all kinds of fish. That's usually the, the net analogy. I'll make you fishers of men. And, and another similar parable in, in Mark 4, he also said, This is the kingdom of God. A man casts seed onto the ground. And maybe as we think of casting our nets to the other side, that's also an application. You've maybe been talking to the same people again and again to the point of casting pearls to swine. Casting your net on the left side, on the left side, on the left side. Maybe we need to open our eyes a little broader, a little wider, and say, God, where can I cast some seed that I haven't before? Where can I cast the net where I haven't before? Who's someone who's right in my orbit that I talk to and appreciate or know a little bit or nod to every day? increasingly awkwardly throughout the day because you've already nodded to them, but where, where, who's some, where, where can I cast this net that I haven't before? And, and ask him to help us to see if there's, there's perhaps going to be a, 
a great harvest uh, in, the, in the field from going out into other soil and casting seed into the ground. I think that this was one of the greatest strengths of the Got Style training that we did and the Got Style book that all you guys got if you went there, uh, which was to think in different terms about what evangelism is. We all had this closed-in notion of it's someone handing out tracts on a street corner or standing on a milk carton preaching or, you know, whatever. We had very, very limited notion, and you had to be super outgoing and assertive to do it. And you all, and we all took that quiz, and there was one person in the whole church who got the assertive thing as their highest gift, their highest strength. You know who it was? Me! No-brainer. I stand up at the pulpit and I preach. Everyone else had other strengths. And, and yet we try to cram ourselves into this mold of, of what we think God wants us to be. God made you to be you, and he's going to use you as you this year. Cast your net on the other side. Ask him to show you how you can be used in new ways. You know, during the Second Great Awakening, the gospel or some form of it went through the, the entire eastern United States, and people heard it who hadn't heard it. People did come to faith. People did kind of revitalize churches. But what happened was that it almost oversaturated with the showmanship of the whole thing. P.T. Barnum was literally making the tents, and it was very, uh, very much a presentation for the masses. And as they went through, they tried to come a second time to some of these same cities and found went from huge response to almost no response. And they started referring to these places as the burned over district. Like if a fire comes through, it leaves nothing behind, and now it's just fallow ground for a while. And perhaps in your life, there's a little burned over district. Perhaps you have talked to the same few people so many times about faith, maybe you need to let them stew in it for a year. Maybe you need to let God work in their hearts with the seeds you've already planted or someone else to come and water. Remember, I planted, Apollos watered, but God is the one who made it grow. Cast your nets on the other side. I'm belaboring that one. Finally, number seven, do cast your crowns at the Savior's feet. Revelation 4, this beautiful apocalyptic image of the, the lamb on the throne in the throne room of God, the 24 elders fall down. Obviously, that's the 12 uh, tribes and the 12 apostles together, the whole people of God pictured for us in, in a, a apocalyptic vision. They fell down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, O Lord, are in God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. What is my goal in any given resolution is the sub-question here. Is it for my own betterment? Is it for my own glory? Is it for my own success? Is it for my own satisfaction? Or is it for God's glory? Am I trying to gain my life in doing that? Save my life, gain my life? Jesus says I will lose it. Or am I losing it for his sake that I might gain it? In a beautiful picture, Mark eleven seven. As the colt is brought to Jesus, the people cast their garments upon it so he could sit on them. This is such a beautiful picture of everything we're given. You know, I think of, of Joseph in his many-colored robe, this thing that almost defined him in his glory and the expectations his father had for him and what he would accomplish. 
him taking that off and casting it on a donkey's back so Jesus can ride upon it. That should be a picture of anything we try to accomplish in a new year, anything we try to accomplish in ourselves. Am I, am I trying to lose weight so that I will be more attractive, or am I trying to be a better steward of this body God has given me? Am I trying to gain uh, some kind of new position at work because I think that I can be better used in my vocation in that way and bring more glory to God ultimately and doing uh, everything not as unto men but as unto him? Or am I just looking to keep climbing the ladder because that's what we do? Or it would come with more money and that would mean uh, more fun, more possessions. The question is, who, who are these crowns for? Do I want them to wear them or do I want them so I can chuck them at the feet of my Savior one day? Whatever you do, St. Paul says, do it for the glory of God. And think about how this frees you up. If it's his glory on the line when you attempt something, you've got nothing to lose. His glory is going nowhere. If it's my glory that's on the line and my success and my name every time, oh boy, that sounds like an awful lot of weight on my shoulders. And in all of this, remember, the only reason that we can follow him at all is because he has cast our sins into the depths of the sea. It's one of my favorite pictures in all of the Old Testament. It comes from Micah chapter 7. Looking forward, he says, You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. I promise there's a translation that says casts to keep it on theme. But man, that is a beautiful word, hurl, just throwing it, throwing it over. You remember when, when they, they were uh, bringing Paul to Rome and they got into that mega squall and the whole ship was in danger of going down. What did they start doing? Casting overboard. Even the food, they're like, quick, have one more meal and we're gonna chuck that overboard. Throw it out, it's gone. It goes down, 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 down. Even today, we know all sorts of stuff more about outer space than we know about beneath our own oceans. It's a mystery. And when something went there, I mean, sadly today, plastic goes there and it's not gone. But in the, the mind of the first century or the eighth century BC follower of this God, for the sins, the iniquities of the person to be cast into the sea, it was, it was a perfect picture of them being erased from existence, thrown into a black hole, just whoop, gone, absolutely gone, as far as the east is from the west, according to the psalmist. How far is the east from the west? A kind of infinity, I guess. I'm glad he didn't say north and south. You go east, you go west, you can keep going forever. And this is the picture that we have of our God. He is the God who has taken our sins, not only away from us, but set them on the shoulders of his only son because of his great love for us. Don't let any kind of resolution you make find its grounding in your strength, your desire, your devotion, your, your elbow grease or any other kind of Americanism. Rather, it must all be rooted in the fact that our God has saved us and is saving us, has taken our sins from us, that he who was with no sin, not only did he not cast the first stone, he became sin for us. If we put all of our eggs in that basket, this will be a good year of following Jesus. Let's go to him now in prayer. Heavenly Father, I... 
I hope that this perhaps too clever of a sermon has been to some profit for our congregation. I do pray for our church in this coming year that we would all of us grow deeper, deeper in our faith, deeper in our trust, that we would cast aside our doubts, cast aside the sins that would entangle us and drag us down, that, Lord, we would not want to cast the first stone, that we would not want to be angry people, judgmental people, but, Lord, that we would want to cast aside our doubts and cling to you. We pray that you would give us a renewed hope for the future, that you would show us how you would have us, perhaps in unexpected ways, bring glory to your name this year, that we would be open to doing something different and new, that we would want to see your church bring glory to your name right here in this neighborhood in South Lansing. Lord, we know that it is needed now more than ever. We pray that we would be up to the task, knowing that if the burden is heavy, you bear it with us, that you bear the heavy end of that cross. And where there is error mixed in and where there may be maybe selfishness or pride or whatever mixed into our prayers, we're so thankful that Jesus makes intercession and presents our prayers to you spotless, even as he presents ourselves to you spotless. Lord, we pray that you answer those prayers. We pray that you answer the prayers that come rooted in your word, that come purified by your spirit, and Lord, that you continue to make us more and more into the image of your Son in 2022. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.